Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church of Auburn, where we get a chance to sit down and have a conversation with Pastor Zellner and learn how God's Word applies to our lives. Welcome back to Conversations. I'm your host, Will Leitner, and I'm sitting with my pastor and friend, Eric Zellner. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Will? I'm fantastic. We are cruising along through our questions and answers series, and today we have a special question. Uh, One of the listeners says, more of an extended study, but could you get Pastor Zellner to talk through the book of Revelation? (laughs) <laughs> can you get me to i don't know this is a this is a tough one isn't it oh yes i can <laughs> i really um i appreciate the question i think um it in order to do this question justice it would really you know you'd of course want to spend a long period of time walking through the text and and things like that but it, there's a few things that i think are worth mentioning and and the reason i wanted to go ahead and undertake this one was to help people avoid some of the some of the problems or dangers, maybe even fears, that the book of Revelation has created, uh, not because the book itself has created it, but because scholars from 1850s and beyond have uh, thought it was necessary, kind of in the on the heels of the Second Great Awakening, to use the book of Revelation as a book of fear uh, to get people to hurry up and, and walk the aisle and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's begin. Let's begin with this. I am a firm believer, and I think the the Book of Revelation bears this out that that this particular letter is written to encourage God's people. It's actually not written uh, to give us a mystery that we can't unravel. It's not written to uh, make us confused or fearful. Uh, for sure, this book, which is dated late in the first century, nearing the end of John's life, the the Apostle John's life. Uh, is written, recognizing that there are things coming by way of persecution in the Roman Empire that God's people need to be prepared for. And so um, I, I want to I begin by saying that. You must begin with the thought, this is written by way of uh, comfort and for conviction. So there's conviction and comfort, which are a two-pronged fork to use as you walk through this particular book. I think you immediately meet uh, the the concept of the book as the as the book opens John this apostle who has 30 years earlier said goodbye to his his friend Jesus who he knew on earth uh, meets Jesus now again the son of man in a vision in chapter 1 and when he meets him uh, we are introduced to the concept in chapter 1 verse 20 of seven stars that you saw in my right hand and it gives us an explanation seven golden lampstands seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches um, so that begins us with the question of the number seven um, and I do want to point out by way of warning here as well there are lots of people um, namely like a Charles Ryrie or Schofield those who uh, espoused an end times view that was called um, dispensational premillennialism, uh, those really used numerology almost in a way, well, in a way that was not only incorrect, but uh, as if it was a puzzle to be figured out and uh, only a few 
special people had studied it. This was really common in the uh, 1960s, 70s, and 80s from uh, some of the Baptist um, seminaries. People were trained in, in this kind of theology. I just think you need to read Revelation and uh, and take what it gives you. So when it says in, in chapter 1, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then he says, I'm going to tell you uh, three, I'm going to give you uh, comments in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to these seven churches. The angel is basically, as you can tell from the text, it's the it's the guardian over this body of believers that the Lord has placed there. And Jesus himself, speaking to John, is saying, I'm going to now address Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and I want to tell you the things that concern me, this is Jesus, to, to his church, about this church. These are the things I can commend. These are the things I want to uh, – to warn you about. So very specifically, this is a book that's written to seven particular churches. So if we're going to preach the book of Revelation today, we have to begin by saying uh, this this was written to a particular people at a particular time. What are the warnings that we can glean from that? What are the convictions that we can draw from this? Uh, the concept of lampstand um, has to do with the uh, the light of the gospel being carried forth. And so when there's a threat that the lampstand would be taken away, it's a, it's a warning that if you do not stick to these first principles, you may in fact lose the very substance of the gospel on which this church was founded. Um, so from chapter 2 to chapter 3, that's, that's what you have there. And then when you transition to chapter 4, uh, we, we are introduced to the throne of heaven. Uh, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Uh, and I heard a voice speaking to me like a trumpet. When you encounter trumpets in the Bible or voices that sound like trumpets, uh, they are declarations of things which Jesus wants to to communicate to his church. So here's a here's a profound, strong declaration of something that is true. Um, it also can accompany an event which is about to be uh, laid before John's eyes. So trumpets are used to draw attention uh, to the point. This throne in heaven tells us that there's uh, John's getting a, a glimpse of of the of the Christ, and and then this uh, in chapter five you have the the scroll and the Lamb. I'm going to quickly summarize. There's a scroll and the Lamb, and then there's seven seals on the scrolls, and nobody can open the scrolls, and the, nobody can crack the seals. Who's worthy to do that? Uh, this is this is um, something, and this is important for people to think about when they study the book of Revelation. While we may be confused by this imagery, I am completely convinced the first century church was not was not confused by this imagery. They understood what was being communicated. And so who in the world would be capable of controlling and telling God's people about the future events which are coming? Only Jesus. Who's who is worthy to open these scrolls? Who's worthy to reveal this information? Who's worthy to do that? And then there's none worthy except this lamb. And he alone is declared worthy. Um, and then basically the the declaration that comes when this the seals are open is this. Um, there's a real true judgment that's coming against God's enemies. And that's the warning of Revelation. It's a comfort for God's people, and it's a warning that stands for the world who's opposed to the Christ. Then in chapter 7, you know, by way of numerology, you encounter 144,000 uh, 
of the people of Israel who are sealed, sevens and twelves uh, in the in the way the Hebrew mind would have thought. These are these are fullness. These are numbers of fullness. Seventy depicts that as well. And so when you have one hundred forty four thousand, one of the crazy things that people did in dispensational premillennial theology is they thought, well, I think there may only be 144,000 Jews who are actually saved. Um, and that is to over-literalize the number 144,000, right? There's 12 tribes in Israel, um, and 12 tribes in Israel represents the fullness of the tribes of Israel. Uh, 12,000 uh, in each of the 12 tribes would represent a full number of complement of people who are following the Christ. And and so when you have 144,000, all you have is 12 tribes and a full complement of those who are of those tribes that, that are following the Christ. And so we don't have to allow ourselves to be tripped up by a number like that. We say clearly what God is communicating in chapter 7 is there are going to be a, a full complement of those who belong to Christ and are of uh, Hebrew ethnicity, right? And then the next uh, portion of that passage is a great multitude from every nation, tribe, tongue, people. So you've got all the nations of the world coming, not just the Hebrew people. Um, and then to transition, to, to jump ahead, we meet, um, you meet this, uh, a woman who's giving birth in chapter 12. There's a woman and a dragon. And the woman depicts, uh, it says, another sign appeared in heaven, um, there's this um, woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head, a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and in agony. And then another sign that John sees on the other side of the heavens, a red dragon with seven heads, ten horns on his head, seven diadems. People get so hung up on what are these various diadems, what are these seven, that it it is just meaning to give us the sense this is a this is a picture of fullness of evil coming against a woman who's giving birth scholars understand that and i think the first century understood that oh that's a picture of christ right and 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 does not uh genesis tell us that the the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and doesn't the serpent strike at the heel of the woman so here's here's this dragon who's introduced and the bible goes on to tell us in chapter 12 verse 9 the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, and it, it tells us, what is, who's this dragon? Uh, it's not Russia in 1985. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not Cold War Soviet Union. It's not China. It says in chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This, of course, is, is, a clear picture of what Isaiah already told us that you know Satan fell from heaven and uh, and it tells us then after that how Satan being thrown down the church is meant to and will conquer the very next thing we meet um, is a first beast and uh, so while people wrestle in our day what is this beast who is the beast what does that mean if the dragon is Satan, uh, the beast is very quickly introduced as a kingdom of the world or m- one of many kingdoms of the world that have, that have existed and opposed Christ and God's kingdom and the true reign of the Father, uh, and, and now they exist and try to oppose God's people themselves. Then you, get, you suddenly get the sense of what a comfort that would be 
right? And I, if I can read in a prophetic book that God's given to me, and I'm in the first century, and there's a first beast listed in chapter 13, and then a second beast listed, um, and then it tells us what happens with the lamb and the 144,000, how he shields and protects his people. Um, and, and we're going to later find out um, about more about this, this beast or a greater beast, you might say. In chapter 15, we meet uh, seven angels with seven plagues, and we recognize if, if we go back to the imagery that chapter 1 told us about, there's a, these angels are overseeing the various churches. The seven plagues are being poured forth, and the reason we know this, chapter 15 tells us about the plagues, and then chapter 16 immediately tells us about seven bowls of God's wrath. All right, so what is seven? We're still talking about a perfect picture of God's wrath being poured out upon those nations that have have hurt God's people, have have fought against God's kingdom, have hated the Christ and and uh, God Himself, and so in chapter sixteen, these seven bowls of wrath are poured out. And because we've been studying Exodus, we remember how many times it came up that those seven bowls of wrath are indicative of of almost identical wrath being poured out on the people of Egypt under Pharaoh's reign, and we have almost identical imagery. This is telling us, and it would have been a comfort to God's people in first century, right? Okay, so Rome and uh, the Roman Empire is crushing Christians under the weight of this persecution. Uh, God's wrath is fully uh, prepared to be poured out upon these enemies of God. And that, I mean, it's a great comfort, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really get a sense of that. And then um, in chapter 17, where we meet one who is called the great prostitute and the beast. Um, and if we wonder who this great prostitute is, chapter 17, verse 5 tells us, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of the prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Um, and then it says in verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Um, in, in the ancient world, as Christians begin to be persecuted, they refer to the Roman Empire not as Rome, lest they be accused of, um, of fighting against the Roman Empire. They refer to this as Babylon. Because in, in, in many ways, and this is what the Scripture is laying out, in very many ways, Babylon really is one of many kingdoms of the earth that seek to crush and, and hurt God's people. And so when we see that this great prostitute is drunk on the blood of the martyrs, we go, oh, this is very clearly a story about Rome. And the, first, the people of the first century understood that. Chapter 18 then is described as the fall of Babylon, which imagine what a great comfort it would be if you are watching your, your wife and your children carried away to be persecuted as a believer in the first century. And as a man, you're completely incapacitated, whether by chains or being captured, and you're watching as your children are carried away. Where in the world do I have hope? Well, Jesus has told John, and he's telling the churches, make sure you understand this wicked prostitute, this beast which is fighting against my people, will fall. She will crumble. And the rest of the book of Revelation uh, through there talks about the reign of Christ and how he will uh, ultimately win over the kingdoms of the world and over Satan. So 
that's a that's a in some ways a long monologue that I've done here on this. But we don't even have to get down into the weeds of am I a premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial? Uh, that refers to the thousand years that's in Revelation twenty. Um, we don't even have to get in the weeds there. We can just recognize this is a book that would have been profoundly comforting to God's people. And so when we approach it, uh, it's probably better to come up out of the weeds and fly at a little bit higher level just to simply read and say, okay, what what did God intend to communicate to Christians who were suffering in that first century and were going to suffer for the next several centuries under the Roman Empire um, and, and under many other regimes throughout history, right? So one last one last warning. Um, I would say this. If you are reading and studying people who are teaching you to be looking for um, the United States of America um, in the book of Revelation, and you're trying to figure out where is America, uh, where is um, where is Russia, where's China, we will do ourselves a grave injustice if we think of any of those as being kingdoms that are on the side of Jesus ever, right? Mm. Even the United States of America, right? Uh, the This nation uh, is not written into the book of Revelation except in that it is represented as one of the the beasts. Um, and and same with the Soviet Union, the same with uh Russia. I remember as a child, a, a really young child, listening to my pastor in my home church, and, and he was doing a series on Revelation. And my conclusion at probably eight or ten years old was, oh, this is terrifying. And my other conclusion was, um, I don't know what is coming or what's happening, but my pastor is coming across as though he's uncovered the mystery. Well, if I'm preaching Revelation, I want God's people to know there's no mystery. Um, and, and it's not something that Eric holds or somebody else holds. This is Jesus revealing his word to his people, and he is intending to comfort them. So if you come away terrified, you, you may come away terrified if you're if you're opposed to Christ and you're persecuting his people. But if you're one of God's people and you read the book of Revelation, you're meant to be deeply comforted, to go, oh, my my king wins. Even when the kingdoms of this world look like they're powerful, my king wins. So we don't look for uh, fulfillment in Revelation uh, as it as it's landing in the year 2022 or 1985 or 1965, whatever it would be. We, we recognize this was written to that first century so that they might see and recognize a framework to understand all the persecution and sufferings that are coming. So that's that. I hope that's a good, quick overview. I'm not sure if it was quick. <laughs> well, that was very helpful. And I think when we see the reign of Christ, we as Christians, our response should be, "Come, Lord Jesus, come," because mm-hmm. everything yeah. will be set to the way that it was designed from before the foundations of the world yeah, for us right. to commune with our King forever. Mm. Yeah, that's. I think that's the that's the the reason John concludes the book that way. It's a, it's a summons for the Lord Jesus to come and make all things right again. Absolutely. So that's a good question. Well, thank you so much for the time, and yeah. thank you for answering our question, Pastor Zellner. And we will see you guys at our next podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Will.